Uh, human beings are generally, by and large, uh, afraid of the dark. Um, when I was a, a child growing up, uh, we had a basement, you know, a kind of cellar under your house. And uh, I remember being sent at night into the basement to find something. And inevitably, somehow, uh, it might have been someone, would shut the door behind me before I could find the light switch. And so, maybe you've had something like this happen to you, maybe a dark closet, a dark room, something like that, but you're, you're stumbling around in the darkness, searching, um, the, the, the tension builds, especially if you're young, the tension builds, you're just waiting, you know, for the axe murderer to tap you on the shoulder, for the cold, clammy hands to, like, reach around your neck, and you're just, you're, you're, you're terrified. Um, you're, even if you find the door, you, you know, I remember pounding on it, let me out, let me out. And then um, usually my mom would open the door um, and, you know, that golden ray of, of uh, light just streams in and you, you weep tears of joy as you run for it, running for freedom, running for the light uh, in the darkness. Um, but here's the thing, friends, as we come to this passage this evening, we face the fact that we have a problem which is far more than being locked in a dark room. Um, this Sunday, you and I are reminded that we have a spiritual problem, a, a problem with our hearts, that there's a darkness that pervades us as human beings and us as our world. We are trapped in a prison of our own making, enslaved to a master that we don't even realize that we have. Here in Isaiah 9, we also come face to face with the answer, with, with a rescuer, a deliverer, the one who opens the door, as it were, uh, the one who frees us from the dominion of sin and comes as the light into our darkness. He is the rising sun who, who dispels the gloom, just as, you know, you, you look out in the morning and you can see, I remember this past Easter, um, looking out at my kitchen window and looking at the eastern horizon just as the sun was, was rising, breaking through the clouds. That's who Jesus is for us today, friends. He is the, the, the king, the Messiah, who woos us to himself and says, here you can find rest. Here you can find light and life. Here you again find the presence of God Almighty. And what we're going to do this evening is ask three questions of this passage. Three questions. First, who does Jesus redeem? Who does Jesus redeem? Second, how does Jesus redeem? And thirdly, why does Jesus redeem? So who, how, and why? First, who? Who does Jesus redeem? Well, just to provide the context for this passage, very briefly, when, when Isaiah wrote this, the nation had been split in two, north and south. The kingdom of Israel is composed of the northern ten tribes, the kingdom of Judah, the southern two tribes. And although closely related, they were blood kin, they hated one another. They hated each other. Um, going back into Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 8, uh, we find that the northern kingdom of Israel had teamed up with the foreign nation of Syria, uh, and they were planning to attack Judah. But this act of treachery 
Isaiah says, wouldn't go unpunished. There would be consequences. God would bring the Assyrian Empire down like a hammer on Israel as a consequence of this. And so we read in Isaiah 8:22 what sounds like the last word on the subject. It says, they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. So Israel has turned their back on God, turned their back on their kin, and they're getting what they deserve. But this is then what makes the next verse, Isaiah 9, verse 1, so surprising, because Isaiah goes on. But there will be no gloom for her who was in in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And all the different labels here that are mentioned, Galilee, the Gentiles, tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali, the way of the sea. These are all ways of referring to those northern ten tribes of Israel. And so they're going to be restored he says. They're, 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 and, and we, as the reader and, and uh, the original recipients as well as us, we're meant to be stunned. But as Will pointed out, this is an Advent text, uh, or at least it's been traditionally used as an Advent text. And so I think for our familiarity with it has been dulled somewhat. We're meant to be surprised and shocked that these no-good backstabbing traitors receiving this glorious promise of forgiveness and restoration. They are the hardened prodigals. Um, They had rejected the line of David. They had set up their own king, their own gods. They had set up their own temple, even, in Samaria. Yet God, in his grace, doesn't abandon them. He doesn't forget about them. He he, 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 He plans, he says, to reunite them under a new Davidic king. And I just want to stay, uh, take a moment here to, to stop and make application for us because I'm guessing that some of you here or maybe some of you watching at home, um, you, you grew up in the church. Maybe you went faithfully to church for a good portion of your life, but you've turned your back on the church. Maybe you just Someone dragged you here, a spouse or uh, a friend. Um, You've turned your back on God. Christianity doesn't seem that relevant to you. And you wanted to test some things on offer in the world. You know, university is a great time, it seems like, to do that. But, But if you're honest with yourself, all you find in that lifestyle is emptiness, shame, worthlessness, what the Bible would call darkness, darkness. And now, perhaps, you felt like, well, it's too late for me. I've burned too many bridges. I've turned my back. There's no way I could possibly look for that or expect forgiveness and love and grace again. You can't make up. For what you've done. Maybe that's what you feel like. But friends, Christianity is not about making up for what you've done. 
Christianity is about someone else doing for you what you can never do for yourself. Christianity isn't about somehow undoing a life of regret or making up for it. Christianity is placing your regret and your shame on someone else who pays the penalty for you. That there is a substitute. That there is someone who has paid that debt so that you, God pronounces upon you, not guilty. And he accepts you and calls you again beloved and restores you to himself. No sin, friends, is too great. No rebellion is too rebellious. He is the father who welcomes the prodigal son back with open arms. and He will never turn you away. At the same time, though, we also have to uh, beware of taking God's grace for granted. Because the moment that grace stops being amazing, we lose our sense of wonder, our sense of awe, and we start to think to ourselves, well, of course God loves me. Ah, I've been pretty good, you know, it's been okay. I've, I've done a really good job with my Bible reading plan this week. Um, I didn't snap at this person. They really upset me. I did not. I, I, I held my tongue. Um, we, we start to think to ourselves, I'm really quite qualified to be here and to come before God. But, but friends, think about it this way. If you are lost in a pitch-dark labyrinth, does it matter whether you're dr- dressed in a tuxedo or or in a a ripped, ragged t-shirt. No one can see it one way or the other, right? Likewise, does it really accomplish anything to boast to other people about your clothes when no one can see them? Again, darkness. Now, if you think that perhaps it does accomplish something to boast about clothes when no one else can see them, there's a great tale about an emperor that I can tell you about later on after... Uh, after the sermon. Um, The reality, friends, is that we are all lost in darkness. We're all lost in darkness. We need someone to bring light into our darkness. Sin, you see, isn't so much something that we do. It's who we are. As Isaiah says elsewhere, our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. In the words of the Apostle Paul, we were dead in our sins and transgressions. The only way any of us could possibly be qualified to stand before God in God's presence is based on what Jesus has done. As Paul says in Colossians 1, verses 12 and 13, we give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. And the Apostle Peter says much the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 2 where he says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
This is the God that we serve, a God who is in the business of bringing people out of darkness into light, whether Israel, these ten tribes, or whether you and me today, friends. So who does Jesus redeem? Those in darkness who admit that they're lost. Those whose prison doors are flung open by the gospel. As as Charles Wesley wrote in his beloved hymn, And Can It Be, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, Fast bound in sin and nature's night, thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. This is who Jesus redeems. Second, how? How does Jesus redeem us? How did Jesus conquer our darkness? Well, I just want to mention two things quickly. First, He experienced our darkness for us. He experienced our darkness himself. You probably remember the benediction um, of Aaron uh, in Numbers chapter 6. You know, how does it go? You know, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. God is the true source of light. To be in his presence and to have his face shining upon you, the smile upon his face beaming down upon you. We experience this as as, as children, looking up into our parents' face, at least I hope you did. Um, And this is just a tiny reflection of the, the, the smile on God's face when he looks at us with acceptance and love, calling us his beloved children. To be in his presence is to be in a place of light and life. Conversely, to be separated from him is to be in darkness and death. That's where darkness and death is found. And the cause of darkness in Isaiah 9 is this persistent unbelief. The persistent unbelief of God's people resulting in God turning away his face from them. It's a sign of judgment. In the previous chapter, again in Isaiah 8, verse 17, we see Isaiah talking about this, actually. He says, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. He's simply saying, echoing, as it were, something from long ago that God predicted about his people back in the uh, book of Deuteronomy, chapter 31, verse 17. In Deuteronomy 31, verse 17, God says this, Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they will be devoured. Being cast into exile, which was uh, the, the judgment that came upon Israel, being cast out of exile, out of the promised land, is a form of this hiding your face, hiding God's face from them. They have been separated from the promised land, separated from his presence, away from the light, away from the life, away from his blessing, away from his presence into the darkness. And um, this is echoed also in the parables of Jesus. Remember, for example, to enter the wedding with the bridegroom, it's a place of life and light and joy and blessing. But for the foolish virgins, for example, who were too late to the party, they were shut out where? 
into the outer darkness, away from the place of presence, the presence of joy and light and blessing, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, as Jesus so often talks about. In a mysterious way, though, friends, this is what happened at the cross. Because all throughout Jesus' life, his ministry was punctuated by these moments of glory and light and majesty. But at the cross, Jesus experienced a darkness. Darkness for one who had never known a day when his father had hidden his face. When the, he, had, he had always delighted in the light of God's face upon him. But on that day, the sun hid its face, the land was plunged in darkness, and for three hours on the cross, Jesus experienced the wrath of God. And he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God hid his face as his son experienced the wrath of God that you and I deserved for our sin, for our rebellion, for, and he was cast into exile. He received the punishment that we deserved so that we received the blessing and peace and forgiveness. And we will never know a day, friends. For those of you in here who are trusting in Jesus, you will never know a day. It may, be a, it may seem like a dark day. There will be those moments when you will experience the dark night of the soul where it seems like God isn't there. But friends, if you're trusting in Christ, this is your bedrock hope, a promise he makes to you that you will never know a day when your father's face is not shining upon you in love and happiness and blessing and acceptance. This is his promise to you if you're trusting in Christ. Is this where your hope is tonight, friends? Is this the one who you love, who gave himself utterly for you? Then alongside that, in this passage, we also get hints that we have been created anew. There's this new creation theme that runs throughout the passage, that the people of God are a new creation. And just to point out a few things, uh, the word for darkness in Isaiah 9, verse 2, is also used in Genesis 1, verse 2, in the account of creation, where it talks about darkness being over the face of the deep. And what happens next in the creation story? Remember, very next verse, God says, let there be light. And there was light. That's what we, not coincidentally, the, the good news of Isaiah. If you go to Isaiah 40, for those who sit in darkness, they have seen a great light. This work of redemption is a new creation of a new people for God. Uh, first fruits of the new creation. What's more, in Isaiah 9, verse 3, it says that God has multiplied the nation. The same command given to Adam and Eve to be fruitful and to multiply. 
in Genesis 1, verse 28. And what's the promise given to Adam and Eve? What's going to be the ultimate fulfillment of their command to be fruitful and multiply? Where they're going to have a son. They're going to have a, a seed, a chosen a child who will crush the head of the serpent, the one who has deceived them and plunged the world into darkness and into night, a child who will reverse the curse, who will end violence and oppression, erase the effects of the fall, one who will rule the world with peace and justice. And this child is quite clearly the, the theme of verses 6 and 7 in Isaiah 9. And in him, in Christ, we have been born again as the first fruits of that new creation. What all of creation one day will be in the new heavens and new earth, you and I are now in him. What does this mean for, for us? Well, what does this mean for us today? What does this mean for you this week? Well, it means, friends, that you have been brought into the presence of God now. In every moment of every day. And that means we have an obligation then to live our lives quorum Deo. To live our lives before the face of God. Acting for his approval. Not for the approval of your employer or your co-workers or friends at school. Not to please other people. You're pleasing God. Not them. You're living for his glory. Basking in his glorious light but i'll be the first to admit that this is not easy to do actually it's fairly difficult if you if you've lived a single hour in this world you know that this is a challenge uh, because the moment-to-moment -moment pace of life presents us with a whole range of things that are competing for our attention competing for our favor competing for our priorities will i face this that, the other thing, uh, uh, thinking, uh, thinking about myself as a new creation in Christ, or that I have the favor of my Father in heaven, or will I give my ear to my anxieties, my fears, my failures, my life of regrets? Um, what news shapes my identity more? The good news of the gospel? Or the news of the daily news cycle, which we get on our phones and our TVs and the internet. Whose opinion do I care about more? That of my family and friends or employer or that of my Father in heaven? And that leads us to our third point. Why? Why does Jesus redeem us in the first place? Well, I think there are two reasons here pretty clearly spelled out in the text. And if you know anything about the Westminster Shorter Catechism, these won't be a surprise to you. He does it for his glory and our joy. All right, first, his glory. Well, if you look back through the passage, do you notice the verbs? Right? God is the subject of almost all the verbs. Look at verse 1. He brought into contempt, and he has made glorious. Verse 2. On those who dwelled in darkness, a light has shone. Verse 3, you multiply the nation, you increase the joy, its joy. In verse 4, you have broken the yoke, the staff, and the rod. Verse 5, every boot and every garment will be burned. Verse 6, a child is born 
a son is given. These are all passive verbs. But we're not doing any of them. God is the one who, who enacts all these things, who makes all these things come to pass. He's the implicit subject bringing about all of these actions. And then the passage culminates with that final crescendo in verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Just in case you had any doubts about who is going to bring this to pass. The sovereign Lord is zealous for his glory, and he will not share it with anyone, friends. It's a recurring theme throughout Isaiah. He's the one who raises kings and kingdoms, and he's also the one who topples them and sends them crashing down. By the mere word of his power, he's the one who created the world from nothing and made everything that exists bring it into being. He alone is that wonderful counselor, the mighty God, everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. No one can compare to him. And wonder of wonders. He bends all of creation. He, 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 he uses all of his, his infinite resources, infinite power, so that we can share in his glory bringing us into his presence to delight in him who alone is our chief joy. We were made to worship him. And that's where we find our greatest satisfaction, our greatest peace, our greatest joy. And so we read in Isaiah 59 verse 16, he saw there was no man and he wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation as on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. He is a divine warrior going out to battle to win for himself his long-lost bride his errant, wandering sheep, and he brings us home and defends us from all his and our enemies. Again, as the Shorter Catechism says. The second related reason is for our joy. Verse 3, you have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. The imagery here is of a, of a, a harvest festival mixed with a, like a ticker tape parade. It's like the most joyful occasions you can possibly imagine wrapped into one. Uh, and essentially, there's internally societies at peace. It's, it's, it's experiencing blessing and abundance. There's no lack of anything. And externally, there's no enemies. It's like VE Day. Um, everything is as it should be. There is total and wild abandon and joy. That's what's going on here in complete peace. And it sounds amazing. It's a great picture. The picture of this final day, this great day when Jesus returns to restore all things as it should be. But until then... What does this mean for us? How then should we live? Does this, does this mean we can never weep? 
Does this mean there will never be things in our life which will cause us grief, cause us pain and sorrow and heartache? Well, no, no, of course that's, that's not what it means. Jesus himself wept, you remember, at the awfulness of the corruption and decay and death that's in this world. He was deeply moved within himself, as John, the Gospel of John tells us. As friends, it's okay for us, too, to weep with those who weep. Some of you this past year, I wouldn't doubt, have said some hard goodbyes, for example, perhaps to loved ones, spouses, or family members. Uh, many of you, I would suspect, have felt the, the close brush of the shadow of death as it passes. Or you have a persistent and lingering experience of that shadow of death. And in fact, I think a rare word in verse 2 points us in the right direction here. It says, those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness. And that expression, deep darkness, it's the same word that's translated the shadow of death in Psalm 23. Verse 4. They're translated differently in English, but it's the same word in Hebrew. The, the difference communicated, I think, is subtle. But I think it's actually quite interesting. It's striking. We, Isaiah says, we no longer dwell in the land of the shadow of death. But Psalm 23 tells us you and I, we are still walking through the valley of the shadow of death. We, it, it, it is no longer in us. We no longer belong to it. But friends, until Jesus returns or calls us home, we are here walking through this veil of tears. A world which is corrupt and full of injustice and oppression and weakness our own bodies fail us. They betray us. But we don't belong to it anymore. Because in the at the same, very same time, you and I, for those who are trusting in Christ, we are new creations in him. The scenery of the land of the shadow of death still surrounds us. Sometimes it will threaten to suffocate us. But it's for precisely this reason, friends, that you and I come here on the Sabbath, on the Lord's Day, to be reminded again and again of the source of our joy. It's not in this world, friends. It's in Jesus. He is our Redeemer. He is our Savior. He is our champion, the one who has gone before us and won for us the victory so that this veil of tears is not the end. We have a hope that no man can take away from us, that no circumstance or event or tragedy can squash or destroy or snatch away from you of the increase of his government and his peace. There will be no end. Jesus reigns. Jesus reigns. 
and he will establish his kingdom with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. How do I know this? Because the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this, friends.